So we're reading John chapter 9, uh, verses 1 to 41, which is on page 895. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, how, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made muds and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is, sinf how can a, man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind." Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? 
Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And do open back up to John 9, page 8, 9, 5. And um, in the middle bit of the order of service, there's a, a couple of notes as to what we'll see. One of the things I find most persuasive about the Bible is the way it's not afraid to challenge us about ourselves. Often in life, people try to win our favor by telling us the things they think we want to hear. But the Bible is a lot more honest than that. It's full of good news. It's full of assurance, promises, speaks so warmly about the love that God has for all of us. But it never flatters us. And as the proverb says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And one of the hardest things that the Bible ever says to us is that we are not unbiased seekers after truth. We often like to think that about ourselves, that we are purely reasonable, rational people who like to assess the evidence and then make our minds up. But Jesus warns us, the Bible warns us, that that is not the case. He says that very often our hearts rule our heads, that we're inclined to see things the way that suits us best. Now, of course, it's not only Jesus who has said this. Psychologists call it a confirmation bias, and they say that it's a well-established fact of human nature. Unconsciously, we tend to favor ideas that fit with our previously held beliefs and our preferences. And it may well be that if you watch the football in a short time, you'll see a pretty classic example of this as a tackle goes in and all the French fans see a stonewall penalty and all the Portuguese fans see a completely fair tackle. They're looking at the same thing, but their vision is skewed by what they want, by their own interests. We see in other words, what we want to see. Well, sometimes we won't see at all. I remember um, talking to somebody in my family about the number of cigarettes they smoked. And um, you know, I mentioned what the medics say about the health implications and things. And they said, ah, all of that is so boring. Please, let's not talk about it. We see what we want, and sometimes we won't see at all. And this is the issue that is raised in John 9. It's all about seeing and not seeing. Now, of course, at one level, it's the story of a man who was born blind who wonderfully regains his sight through an amazing miracle of Jesus. But it's also about spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. That verse that Robin read at the beginning of the service, verse 39, if you have a look, that's really the punchline of the whole chapter as Jesus sums up and says, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Notice there are two parts of that. There's an offer and a challenge. His offer is an offer that those who are blind might see the gift of spiritual sight. He's saying that he will show the truth. But he also challenges us that maybe because that truth has implications, there may be some of us who refuse to see it, even when it's right in front of us. 
For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see, perhaps those who claim to see, would become blind. I wonder what you make this evening of that offer and the challenge. It may be that you're here and you're not yet a convinced Christian. I think what this passage asks is whether or not your reasons for not believing don't have something to do with your heart as well as your head. It's very unflattering, as I said, but isn't it just possible that we say, like, I don't want to serve God, and so I won't believe in a creator. I don't want to be accountable to God, so I won't believe in him as judge. It isn't flattering, but that's what this passage is asking us to think about, to have a look at our own reasons, to try to uncover our own perhaps subconscious bias. But also if you are a Christian, in verse 39, Jesus is really talking about people who he's engaged with in the chapter who are upright and respectable and religious and orthodox. That's what the Pharisees were. Of course they knew the truth about God. You know, like many of us. They were in church and had been all their lives. They knew their stuff. But Jesus is saying that actually spiritually, they're as blind as a bat. They refuse to see because it doesn't fit with what they thought God should be like, even though Jesus was standing right in front of them. And so this chapter is asking us as well, how clear is your spiritual vision? Do you see what Jesus is showing you? Or do you only see things in a way that actually suits you. That's the challenge of the chapter, and as I said, it isn't very flattering, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. And of course, there is the flip side, that wonderful offer that for those who are blind and know it, for those who humbly accept, the Lord Jesus is willing to open our eyes and show us the truth. That's the two sides of this passage. And the story works by way of a contrast, a contrast between a blind man who sees clearly and proud men who will not see. Let's take each of those in turn. First, the blind man who sees clearly. When we meet this man in verse 1, he's sitting by the side of the road begging. He's been blind from birth, which must be a tremendously hard thing to manage even nowadays, let alone then, without science and technology and social security. And Jesus is very clear. He says that's no one's fault. His disciples ask that in verse 2. Who sinned? Was it the man or the man's parents that was the reason that he was born blind? And Jesus says, no. Rather, this man is blind so that the works of, God, the, works of the Lord might be displayed in his life. And then they certainly are displayed after saying some words, Jesus picks up mud. He rubs it with saliva and puts it on the man's eyes and sends him off to wash in a nearby pool. And then at the end of verse 7, four marvelously understated words, he came back seeing. The thing with the mud is a bit weird. Mud is not a cure for blindness. My older brother is an eye surgeon, and I asked him. He says, it doesn't work. It's not one of the things they've tried, but he's pretty confident. 
Also, though, in the Gospels, we see elsewhere that when Jesus is helping or healing people, he simply has to say the word, and such is his authority that it happens. So what's this all about? I think most likely it's a symbolic act. He is showing something about his own identity by doing something that, when you think about it, points all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible, the second chapter of the Bible, where the Lord God picks up mud, earth, just the same as here, and forms the first man, Adam, from the earth, and then breathes life into his creature. I think that's the point that Jesus is making here, very visually, that in healing this man, he is exercising the same creative power that only God could possibly exercise. So by the end of verse 7, this man can see again physically, But as the rest of the story follows through, it's much more about spiritual sight. Let's have a look at it. Understandably, the man's neighbors are astonished by what's happened. They want to establish the facts. Is this really the man that used to beg? And he keeps saying, yes, it's really me. The man Jesus opened my eyes. Just notice that. The man Jesus. As the story moves on, in verse 13, we meet the Pharisees. As I said... These were the respectable religious leaders of the day, and they also seem keen to establish the facts. But as the man answers their questions and tells them what happened, they do not like what they are hearing. We're starting John here in chapter 9, but it's been clear before that the Pharisees have got it in for Jesus. They have been accusing him of blasphemy, um, opposing his teaching, especially the the, the things that he's been saying about his... um, equality with God, his, uh, his claim to be the Son of God. But here in particular, what they object to is what they see as his Sabbath breaking. In the Old Testament, God's people were commanded to have a Sabbath rest each week. But the Pharisees had added on to that a whole load of other things, a whole raft of rules and regulations. And so because he picked up mud, that probably falls foul of some farming regulation, even though it's nothing of the sort. In their eyes, he's a Sabbath breaker and a sinner. But if you look down at verse 17, see how the man responds. The Pharisees ask him who he thinks Jesus is, and the man is starting to get a bit clearer. He says, well, he must be a prophet. You see, he's been thinking about what's happened, and he's been hearing the Pharisees saying that This Jesus is a sinner, but he knows that doesn't make any sense because only by the power of God could this thing have happened. And so Jesus can't be a sinner. He must be somehow on the side of God. So Jesus is a prophet. And as the hostility of the Pharisees increases, so too does the clarity of the blind man. Please look at verse 24. They bring him back in for another round of questioning. They say to him, "Um, we know this man is a sinner. And see how he answers. Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. It's really simple logic, isn't it? The one thing he knows about Jesus is that he's just done something only God could do. But the Pharisees continue. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've already told you, but you would not listen. 
Notice how obvious all of this seems to this poor blind man. Jesus must be on God's side if he's done what he's done. It's the only logical explanation. And he's amazed that these learned people are unable to see it. And the Pharisees don't like this at all. John writes that they reviled him. You're one of his, his followers, they say. We are followers of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. We, as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. And then what the blind man says next is utterly devastating in its clarity. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God will not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, um, the Lord listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That kind of logic and honesty is far too much for the Pharisees and they throw him out. But Jesus comes, he picks him up, he talks to him. And it's at this point that the man achieves full clarity. He saw Jesus as a man, then a prophet, then from God, and then see what happens next. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. Do you feel the irony of that? You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. This is the blind man who sees clearly. His eyes are opened physically and then spiritually. Jesus is a man, a prophet. He's from God. He is the Lord. So what are we to learn from this? Well, I think the big lesson for us is that it takes a miracle from Jesus to grant a person spiritual sight in the same way as only the Creator's power could open the eyes of a man born blind, so also it can only be the power of God, His powerful intervention in a person's life, that can open our eyes to see the truth about who Jesus is. It doesn't happen in a flash here. It doesn't happen by magic. There is evidence involved. There is reasoning. But nevertheless, we're meant to see that it is the Lord who grants spiritual sight. Think about verse 39 again, the first half of that. Jesus has come into this world so that those who are blind may see. As far as, as, far as the writer John is concerned, it's, it's really a very simple argument for Jesus being the Son of God. He states it a little bit later on in chapter 20. He says in broad terms that Jesus did a load of stuff that only God could do. And he was seen by lots of witnesses who wrote it down for us. And there it is. Um, but in, in spite of the clarity, the simplicity of that, there is a blindness in us that won't see and can't see who Jesus really is. And only Jesus can heal that. 
Now, practically from this, if, if you're not yet a Christian, I want to ask straight up, are you willing to ask Jesus for this help? Are you willing to take him up on his offer to open your eyes? It's quite straightforward. It's, it'll be a prayer that thousands of people have prayed before you. Jesus, if you're the Son of God, please help me to see it. Amen. If he's not, if you're talking to the wall and haven't lost very much, but if he is, well, that is a prayer that he might just answer. Or if you are a Christian, that is something to be grateful for rather than proud about. Very shortly at the end of the service, we'll have the chance to sing and express that amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. Isn't it wonderful that the Lord Jesus is willing to open our eyes? We don't need to be a great or learned person in order to know the truth about God. The great and learned Pharisees, as I said, were blind as bats. It's Jesus' intervention that matters. It's wonderful truth in our lives. And also in the lives of other people, many of us here will have on our hearts people we would just love to recognize who Jesus is and so find life in him. We need to pray for them. It's something that only Jesus can do. Yes, we need to speak and invite, live a consistent life, but ultimately it takes the Lord to open a person's eyes. And he is not unwilling. Think in this passage, in how he treats the man. Think of what we see of Jesus here. When the rest of us ignore a person, Jesus sees him. When the rest of us blame a person, Jesus cares for him. And when the rest of us cannot help, Jesus can. That's the first side of the contrast in this passage, the blind man who sees clearly. And it leads on, on to the second, the proud men who will not see. This, of course, is the Pharisees who refuse to accept the truth about Jesus, even though it's staring them in the face. We've already seen how they cross-examined the man, repeating the same questions again and again because they didn't like the answers they got the first time. It's also apparent in how they treat the man's parents. Please have a look. Verse 18. The blind man's poor mum and dad are hauled in to confirm that this was indeed their son and that he was indeed born blind. But you can see how reserved they are in their answers. They say, yes, well, he's our son. But other than that, they refuse to give any more opinion. Ask him. He's of age, they say. Because they're very much aware that There are certain lines of reasoning, thinking, certain answers that are politically unacceptable. John notes that the Jews had already agreed that anyone who got a bit too near to saying that the Lord Jesus was the Christ of God would be thrown out of the synagogue. Perhaps that doesn't sound too bad to us, but in that society and culture, that would have been a really big deal to be persona non grata, to be uh, lose your reputation lose your standing in the community, your ability to function. By and large, threatening your witnesses is not a good way to find the truth. 
if certain answers are off limits, then that's not a genuine inquiry. You know, of course, you need to keep an open mind. You need to look at the evidence, see which way it's pointing, and go that way. But that is not how these men operate. They've already made their minds up. Why? Are they, are they, are they stupid? No. These would have been the highly educated elite. Were they evil men? Well, not by conventional standards. These people would have been responsible, respectable pillars of the community. The problem is their pride. They're blinded by their pride. Look down, please, at verse uh, 28. And they reviled the blind man, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Or on to verse 34. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they threw him out. I think it was um, a year or two ago, there was a politician who was accused of having said to some policeman in Westminster, Out of my way, you plebs. I wonder if you remember that story. I think it ended up, it wasn't true. He sued them and won. I'm not sure. It doesn't really matter. Think of that kind of attitude. Think of those kinds of words. And you get pretty close to how the Pharisees treat this poor man. He's standing in front of them. He is answering their questions as best he can. He's drawing some logical conclusions from the information that he knows. And because they don't like it, they say, you filthy little pleb, who are you to lecture us? Don't you know who we are? We're the disciples of Moses. And they throw him out. These are proud men. They see themselves as righteous and completely right. In their minds, they have nothing to learn from this person, nothing to learn from this situation. The facts don't seem to fit with their preformed view of Jesus, but somehow they must be made to. Before they've even asked their questions, they have prescribed a, a range of answers that is acceptable. And so when the facts point in a slightly different direction, they just can't see it. They just won't see it. They're completely blind. I think it's supposed to be ironic that these are the wisest. They would have seemed the most reverent men in the whole land. And yet they are completely blind. Look again, please, at verse 39. But we'll read a little bit further this time. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. These are the proud men who will not see. Um, what are we to learn from this? Well, as I said, this is a challenge. It's a challenge about ourselves. Are we willing to accept that there is this blindness in us? Or are you really, really sure that you can see? The Bible says that we all have this blindness in us, a deep-seated urge to exalt ourselves against other people and even against the Lord. 
I want to be at the center of my universe, and I, I don't want to cede control of my life. I don't want to give up the steering wheel. And so, for all of us, it is a deeply inconvenient truth that we owe everything to God. Very inconvenient that he made us and that we owe him everything. We're accountable to him for how we live. We don't like these ideas. And so, as another verse in the Bible puts it, we suppress them. We filter out the things that point in that kind of a clear direction. It's not flattering, but it's something that we have to think about. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, why don't you believe? Now, I don't think that this passage is saying, I don't think the Bible says that intellectual doubts can never be sincere. Rather, what this passage is saying is that behind, underneath those doubts, it's worth having a look to see if there is anything else lurking. Is it purely head reasons stopping you from trusting Jesus, recognizing him for who he really is? Or are there some heart reasons mixed up in that as as well because of the change that it would mean in your life? Because of, I don't know, after many years of saying one thing, you would have to say something different. The the writer Aldous Huxley is perhaps best known for his novel, A Brave New World. But he wrote about a range of subjects. And there's a very interesting essay called Ends and Means in which he talks about some of the heart reasons that he saw in his own intellectual positions, his own atheism and humanism. Let me read you a couple of little bits. It's very honest. He says, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning, and consequently, I assumed it had none and was able to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. Most ignorance is vincible ignorance. We don't know because we don't want to know. And then a little later. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system, and also from a certain system of morality. We objected um, to the morality because it interfered with our freedom, principally our sexual freedom. We objected to the political and economic system because it was unjust. Now again, I don't think he's saying, I don't think anyone's saying that intellectual doubts are never sincere. But it is honest, isn't it, that he was willing to really examine the conclusions that he had come to and his process for getting there. He was willing to face up to the fact that our hearts have reasons as well as our heads. And of course, this is also an issue for Christians. We are no less capable of having deep-seated heart reasons which skew our judgments or even blind us to what God is saying. Remember who the Pharisees were. If you're tempted to think that this is a point for somebody else, remember who they were. These were the religious insiders, the most respectable people. They would have been sitting in church. They had been their whole lives. They looked like they would be the first people to see. But in fact, they're blind. I don't know about you if you're a Christian, but 
isn't it easy to say, often subconsciously, ah, I already know what I believe. I know I'm a Christian, and I know what sort of Christian I am, if you see what I mean, in terms of what I believe. And then we approach a sermon or a Bible passage in an attitude of looking for confirmation that we were right, rather than looking really to learn. It's a dangerous attitude, easy to fall into, but very dangerous. It leads to enormous blind spots. So we refuse to repent, whether intellectually or morally in different areas, because we, we refuse to see the ways in which God's word is challenging us. We filter those bits out. As we read the Bible morning by morning, or as we don't do that, isn't it easy to lose the thought that I might actually learn something or see something new and fresh there? Especially if you've been a Christian for a while, it can just turn into something that we do. But when you really look at it, God's word is always fresh. There are always surprises. Things we haven't quite seen that way before. Or ways in which it applies to our lives and ourselves that we hadn't quite seen before or hadn't felt with such force. We need to keep on praying. This is the, where this passage leaves us, I think. Whether we're Christians or not, we need to keep on praying with the psalmist. Lord, open my eyes that I might see wonderful things out of your law. And I think, again, this passage leaves us encouraged that that is a prayer that God might well answer. Let's pray together now. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Our Father, we... Thank you for the honesty of the Lord Jesus that he's willing to speak in unflattering terms. Help us, Lord, to be honest with ourselves about the reasons that hold us back from becoming Christians or from really growing and being flat out as Christians. Help us, Lord, to come always to your word with an expectancy that we will learn And Lord, please answer that prayer. Please open our eyes that we would see fresh and wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.